This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about what we can do to reduce the death toll in the current epidemic of opioid overdoses. Maya Salovitz will report on the Philadelphia neighborhood the New York Times calls the Walmart of heroin, and on the need for harm reduction and safe injection sites. But first, Bill McKibben on the making of our polluted age. Trump Watch starts right now. Abundant energy for lights, gasoline, air conditioning, and heat is something we take for granted, almost like it's air or water. We notice that fact only when there's an electrical power failure or an oil embargo. That's something Bill McKibben has been thinking about and writing about for the nation as part of his work on what comes next. Bill, of course, is an author and environmentalist. His 1989 book, The End of Nature, was the first book for a general audience about climate change. It's appeared in 24 languages, and he's gone on to write a dozen more books. The newest one is titled Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? Its official publication date is April 16th. Bill, of course, is the founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement. It's organized 20,000 rallies around the world in every country except North Korea. He teaches at Middlebury College in Vermont, and he writes for The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, Rolling Stone, and The Nation. Bill McKibben, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be with you as always, John. Well, I want to start with some good news. It's your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. The big news in St. Paul is that the new governor, Tim Waltz, has come out against that new pipeline that would bring crude oil from the tar sands of Alberta across northern Minnesota, past the White Earth Reservation to Superior, Wisconsin. They call it the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline. How did we win this victory, getting the governor to come out against Line 3? Well, as with all victories, it requires good organizing, and there's some very good organizers, as you know, up there up there in Minnesota, uh, Honor the Earth, led by Winona LaDuke and Tara Huska and others, the great indigenous organization, Minnesota 350, Sierra, lots of people hard at work. And this was a kind of gut check for the governor, and uh, happily, he passed. You've been reading and writing about the history of energy for the nation, uh, including a new book by Richard Rhodes. He's best known, of course, for his writing on atomic bombs. In this new one, he says the risks of atomic energy have been overstated. What do you think about that? First thing to say is the guy's a terrific writer, serious historian and a terrific writer. I think that the book is probably one of those books that's flawed by the date of its publication. That is, it came out or the research for it was being done just right at the moment when the cost of renewable energy was just plummeting over the last three or four years. And that has really changed the equation around energy in so many ways. At this point, it looks like the way that the world is going to be proceeding is with cheap renewable energy stored in cheap batteries uh, when the sun goes down or the wind stops blowing. And that that cheap alternative is probably going to make it difficult for what is Rhodes's preferred path forward, 
nuclear power plants. Nuclear power plants, we could talk all night about the safety issues or so on, but in practical terms, the biggest problem at the moment is simply that they're really expensive. And renewable energy no longer is really expensive, and it's increasingly flexible, and that's why around the world it's where people are going. So my guess is that Rhodes' book is one of those books that, had he been writing it now, would sound different than, than it did. Didn't you campaign against the nuclear power plant in Vermont? Vermont has uh, had a troubled nuclear power plant, Vermont Yankee, which, yes, everybody up here, pretty much uh, Republican, Democrat, you name it, finally said should close down when, when the owners of the nuclear power plant misled the state legislature about pretty basic questions, like whether there were pipes underneath the power plant that were carrying waste and that kind of thing. That said, I think the strongest part of Rhodes's argument is that one should be careful, probably, if you have a relatively safe nuclear plant operating at the moment and it's paid for and built, one should be careful about shutting it down without having a lot of renewables in place ready to go. Uh, Vermont shut down its reactor, but then it, because people didn't want to look at wind turbines or hear them, uh, put a moratorium on new wind construction. Power's got to come from someplace. And there's another book by a reporter for Le Monde, A History of the Oil Industry. It's called Oil, Power, and War. Uh, this author is worried about peak oil, an old idea. The idea is that we're using up the available oil resources of the earth and we're going to face terrible shortages soon. Uh, are you worried about peak oil? I think it's one of those things that, you know, one one almost wishes it had happened <laughs> 10 or 20 years ago because it would have been a spur to move us on even more quickly to renewable energy. There seems to be a lot of oil. The question is, you know, at what price and what you have to do to get at it. We're, you know, at the moment doing things like fracking, blowing up the subsurface geology, drilling ever deeper under seas, talking about going beneath the Arctic, on and on and on. All of that's silliness when we have alternatives ready to go. And, you know, oil used to be thought, you know, be harder to replace than, than coal, say, because coal you make electricity with so you can use sun and wind, but you'd need oil for liquid fuel for cars. The very rapid expansion of our EV fleet seems to be calling that into question. I mean, at the moment, I think Tesla's worth more than Ford or GM. Wow. For every car Tesla puts out, the Chinese are putting out about 10 EVs, and we seem to be once again on the cusp of a just super rapid technological transformation. And there's another book you take up in The Nation Current Issue. It has the simple title, Carbon written by a woman named Kate Irvine. It's about the links between energy use, economic growth, inequality, and injustice. Uh, give us an example of what she's talking about. Well, I mean, in a sense, think about this book as a kind of prelude to why we're talking about the Green New Deal now, because it's very hard to pull any of these things out and separate them. Energy such a central commodity. And I think, the, you know, among other things, the thing that gets overlooked sometimes is the fact that it's fossil fuel comes in a few places um, and that the people who live on top of those places tend to develop 
truly outsized power and wealth. Uh, think about the Koch brothers or Vladimir Putin. People who have control of fossil fuels distort our systems in all kinds of ways. The move towards a more democratized and local energy system will be good, not just because it saves the planet from destruction. It might actually make the planet it saves a somewhat better place along the way. Well, of course, the solution that conservatives offer is to cap carbon emissions and trade carbon credits. That's the free market solution. What do you think about cap and trade? Well, I mean, conservatives don't even really offer that option. They <laughs> voted it down 10 You're years right. ago. You're right. I, I stand corrected. Look, the basic idea that there should be a price on carbon is inarguable. There's no reason that carbon alone should be the only pollutant that one's allowed to spew into the atmosphere for free. You and I aren't supposed to just go dump our garbage in the middle of the road. Only the fossil fuel industry gets to do that, you know. But at this point, we've waited so long to deal with climate change that it's not going to happen by, you know, small accounting tricks alone. Well, one of the things I have to watch out for sometimes, having written the first book about all this back in 1989, is the temptation to say, oh, if only you'd listen to me then, you know? Yeah. Because in 1989, relatively modest changes in our trajectory probably would have been enough to produce the kind of shifts we need. But I mean, at this point, we're busily melting the Arctic and the Antarctic. The oceans are rapidly acidifying. We've had the four warmest years in history in the last four years. California has gone from being a place where people think about beaches to a place where think people think about evacuation routes from wildfires. Yeah. I mean, we need action on every possible front now. You know, one of the bigger issues <clears throat> of cap-and-trade uh, has to do with climate justice for, for poor communities. You tend to get these hot spots and yeah. things where, and that's one of the reasons that the EJ community, environmental justice community, has been very forthright and useful in pointing out uh, these problems. Now, I mean, they're not endemic in all pricing solutions. There was a pretty good bill in Washington State last ballot last November endorsed by all the environmental justice groups uh, it was a good enough bill that the oil industry broke every record for spending, and so it's you know managed to defeat it. One can figure out ways to do all kinds of things in ways that respect human beings. The Green New Deal is a good example of that. There's still work to be done on it, including around environmental justice stuff, but it's <clears throat> an example of something that we got the scale right on the folks from the Sunrise Movement and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others have, for the first time, put a piece of legislation forward that's of the same size as the problem it tries to address, and that's pretty crucial. The mayor of L.A., uh, Eric Garcetti, last week made an announcement that is fulfilling one of the principles of the Green New Deal. He... Uh, said that Los Angeles is, is abandoning a plan to spend more than $2 billion rebuilding three natural gas power plants along the coast. It's a move to get the city closer to its goal of 100% renewable energy and to improve air quality in the highly polluted communities of poor people who live around those power plants. Los Angeles used to get most of its electricity from burning coal, uh, 
at the Navajo plant in Arizona. It's pulled away from that. It's still buying coal from uh, Utah, the Intermountain plant. It says it's going to slow down that at lot, but a lot. But the but the DWP, the Department of Water and Power here in L.A., where we record our show, their idea of replacing coal was going to be natural gas. Uh, remind us the problems of replacing replacing coal with natural gas and how important it is that L.A. is not going to spend $2 billion on natural gas plants. First of all, serious shout-out to people who did great organizing to make sure that this happened. Um, and, and to the mayor for stepping up. That was a big deal. The reason it's a big deal is because moving from coal to natural gas at this point doesn't really help on climate terms. You get less carbon, but you get more methane. It's basically a wash. Um, We need to go straight from coal to renewable power, and we can do it. And we can, if we can't do it in California, we can't do it anywhere because, you know, you guys stole most of the sun for the whole continent. I mean, it's the obvious rational choice, and good on the mayor for figuring that out. Well, the DWP here has, its principle has been for its entire existence to make sure everybody has enough electricity to do everything they want. And and now that things are getting hotter in Southern California and everywhere else, what they want is more air conditioning. And they're now saying, well, what, what about brownouts during the heat waves? If the air conditioners go off, you know, that endangers the health and indeed the lives, especially of elderly people. Uh, that's why we need to make sure the electricity stays on, and that's why we need to build these natural gas plants. Uh, what what do we say to that? That's why we need to build lots of renewable capacity. They're not wrong about the need for electricity. We actually do need it, and we'll probably need more of it, because as we move cars from liquid fuel to EVs, the, the demand for electricity is going to go up even as the demand for oil goes down. But that makes it all the more crucial we quickly build out the renewable resources that we need. And California's blessed with that Mojave Desert down the road there. Um, you guys can do this. Well, one big reason for this victory in L.A. is that the Department of Water and Power is a municipal company that's controlled by the city and the voters, not by a private corporation. It's, it's a lot easier to fight City Hall than to fight ExxonMobil. You may get some more of that now that PG&E is going under. (laughs) I noticed. Uh, And there's one last thing in the news about California. Uh, The new governor, Gavin Newsom, announced he's canceling the completion of high-speed rail that was originally intended by Jerry Brown to connect San Diego and Los Angeles to San Francisco. This is also part of the Green New Deal to replace jet travel based on, you know, jet fuel with electric renewable high-speed rail. The complaint was that the high-speed rail in California was doubling in price, costing many billions of dollars. But this has to be seen as a, as a defeat for the Green New Deal, doesn't it? I don't know the details of what's going on out there. And I do know that the price tag had kept going up. But I think that the basic idea is this is precisely what we need, and there's no reason we can't have it. Everybody who's been to Europe or Japan knows that good, efficient, timely, high-speed rail transforms lives there and makes it possible to live in very different ways. And so it's a shame that California can't figure out how to do it. Let's hope that it's a small stumbling block and that the next plan 
gets it done and gets it done quickly. I mean, one of the problems with massive infrastructure projects, of course, is that they normally take a long time. And time is the one commodity that in the climate fight we do not possess. This is the first time test that human beings have undergone. And I got to say, so far, we're pretty far down the grading curve, John. Bill McKibben, he wrote about the making of our polluted age for The Nation magazine. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Bill. It's always great to have you on the show. brother. Take care. A postscript. After we recorded that interview, California Governor Gavin Newsom said he was not giving up on the high-speed rail project. He was simply aiming to complete the segment from Bakersfield to Merced in the Central Valley. And that the problem with the rest was lack of funding to connect the segment north to San Francisco and south to L.A. and San Diego. Then Trump tweeted, whole project is a green disaster, and said he would terminate federal funding of $3.5 billion for the entire 220-mile-an-hour bullet train. And he wanted to get back $2.5 billion that the state has already spent. California says that's political payback for the state taking the lead in the lawsuits challenging Trump's declaration of a national emergency to pay for that wall of his. And that's where it stands at this hour. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. The New York Times recently reported on what it called the Walmart of heroin in the Philadelphia neighborhood called Kensington for a report on keeping people alive in an epidemic of overdoses in places like Kensington. We turn to Maya Salovitz. She wrote the New York Times bestseller, Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Scientific American, and The Nation. Maya Salovitz, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, you talk about the carnival of chaos and death that has accompanied the current crisis that you report on from Philadelphia, where you say no one can recall anything like the current crisis. You went there to the badlands of Kensington and Philadelphia. Tell us about your visit. It's just quite astonishing. We used to see in New York in the 80s these like open-air street drug markets where there were people literally like lining up on the streets for um, to buy drugs, and it was just very much out in the open. But I've never seen something as intense as it is there right now because not only is there this open scene, but there are people who are just staggering around like sort of a level of high that you normally don't see that many people. And you say that the local public library there carries the overdose drug naloxone. Tell us about that. Well, the good thing about opioids is that there's an antidote um, called naloxone, which can uh, reverse an overdose immediately if given in time. And it, it doesn't do anything other than that. It will put you into withdrawal if you're physically dependent on an opioid. But um, if you give it to, say, somebody who overdoses on coke or who has a heart attack or whatever, it's not going to do any harm. So um, in this area, 
where there's people who are just looking for a safe spot to inject. A library bathroom will be warm and private. And so people go in there to do their thing. And then because fentanyl is so prevalent, a lot of them overdose. And then you have librarians doing overdose reversal with naloxone. The heart of your article for The Nation is the report that Philadelphia could become the first city in the United States to open something called a safe injection facility. Tell us about that. So the idea is basically clearly in areas like Kensington where there's concentrated, intense levels of drug use. Nobody walking down the street wants to see somebody shooting up in their neck. No little child on their way to school wants to be watching somebody perform sex work in order to get their next drug. The people who are engaged in those activities do not want to be doing it in the public, but they don't have anywhere else to go. So what a safe injection facility does is it allows people a space where they can do the drug without being in a hurry, without looking over their shoulder for the police, without having to share needles, without having to just, you know, sort of jam it in there quickly so they can get on their way and not be ripped off. It, it basically gives them a space to make this private. And also, if there is an overdose, it can be instantly reversed because there are trained people on hand to do that. Well, how can it be a good idea to help people shoot drugs? Of course, this is the the big objection to safe injection facilities. How can a safe injection place help addicts recover as opposed to making it easier for them to continue being addicts? Well, people have this really absurd idea that if you just are horribly cruel to people with addiction and just put all kinds of obstacles in their way, that's going to stop them. Addiction is defined by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, by the most accepted definition in the world for addiction, is compulsive behavior that continues despite negative consequences. So what do we do to try to fix it? Pile on the negative consequences when that is exactly what it does not respond to. So if you actually want people to stop using, you need to give them space to think. And that's what all of harm reduction approaches do such as needle exchange or safe injection sites and even prescribing heroin. Basically, during active addiction, people are in the grip of the compulsion to continue to do the drugs, and that is their sort of very, very narrow focus. And if they just have the drugs, if they're just in a safe space and they're not in all that, you know, chasing, worrying about the cops, worrying about getting the money, all that kind of stuff, Suddenly, they've got a whole lot of free time on their hands, and suddenly they start thinking, ah, oh, you know, maybe this really isn't what I want. And the other portion of harm reduction that's really important and, and that people don't see, when you give somebody a clean needle or a safe space to inject, what you're telling them is, you deserve to live regardless of our judgment of these habits. We record our show in L.A., On Skid Row, there is a needle exchange, which is sort of one step down from a safe injection facility. And if you talk to the people who come in the door, some of them will tell you, this is the only place I've ever been to in my life where people cared what happened to me. That's exactly the beauty of harm reduction. And that's why you can almost see it as a spiritual thing. I mean, people are just fundamentally being compassionate and saying that, you know, we don't want you to harm yourself. 
we know that you're engaged in this activity that you don't want to stop at this point, but let's not die. Let's keep you alive. Let's see what we can do in order for you to be healthier. And it is amazing to see what happens when some of these extremely marginalized people get a sense that somebody cares. What is just so tragic to me is that we as a society are just like, throw those people away. They're useless. They're parasites. They're, you know, they don't do anything worthwhile. They would if we would give them a chance and stop trying to like bat them over the head so that they stop using drugs. So the United States right now has no cities with legal safe injection sites, although some are trying to do it now. But there are places outside the United States where this has become an ordinary part of city life. Where are those places? Well, I mean, in Switzerland, the first safe injection facility opened up in 1986. And Vancouver has had its safe injection facility, I believe, since the mid-90s. Australia's had them for a long time. Germany has them. The Netherlands have has them. I mean, really, they are not anything different than a syringe exchange with a place for people to actually use the drugs. And I think one of the things that is really tragic about the current fentanyl epidemic is that when the problem was primarily heroin and when the biggest harms that you were associating with injection were the spread of disease and overdose on heroin, safe injection facilities were pretty useful in getting people to dramatically reduce those risks. But with fentanyl on the street, it's sort of like every single injection is like playing Russian roulette. And so people um, in Vancouver um, and in many of these other places are really starting to talk about we really need to like give people a safer supply of drugs and not be having them play Russian roulette every time they take an injection. And that, of course, sounds incredibly scary to people. Now, Switzerland, of course, has had heroin prescribing since the 80s, and, or early 90s, rather. And the U.K. and actually the United States had prescribing for people with addiction in the 20s, and the U.K. kept that all the way up until now. They actually have some people who are maintained on heroin and a very few who are maintained on cocaine. This has been a thread in drug policy for a long time, and what happens, again, when you provide people a safer supply is that people have a moment to think the cops and robbers go out of their life, they are more likely to get a job, are less likely to engage in criminal activity, are more likely to care for their families, you know, all the good stuff. And where in the United States has the campaign for safe injection sites made the most progress? We've talked about Philadelphia. I assume there are other places also. Yes. And I mean, to me, the hopeful thing, I've been writing about addiction and and harm reduction, which is the idea that our drug policy should focus on reducing harm, not reducing people getting high. I've been focusing on that for about, uh, writing about it for about 30 years now. And, you know, when needle exchange was first starting in the late 80s and early 90s, there was massive opposition. Cities did not want needle exchange. New York shut down its needle exchange that the public health department had opened and ACT UP had to come and fight to get it back. We had all of this anti-needle exchange activism, basically, by politicians and by some crazy people like the guardian angels, believe it or not. But anyway, there was all this 
you know, opposition, and certainly there is still opposition now, but we've got New York, Philadelphia, Seattle, Denver, Vermont now fighting to be the first, oh, Ithaca, New York, to be the first place to open a safe injection site. So there are politicians that are on side. There is real progress being shown here because at least we're not fighting to keep it out. Maya Salovitz, she wrote about two cities in the grips of the opioid crisis, Philadelphia and Vancouver, for the new issue of The Nation. Maya, thanks for your work on this, and thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thanks so much. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>